Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Point Man Podcast. I'm your host, John Imperial, and Phil Pelletier is here back with me today. What's going on, man? Hey, John. How you doing, buddy? Oh, hanging in there, hanging in there, getting ready for Christmas. How about you? Bit of the same, bit of the same. I'll uh, I'll be home for Christmas. Maybe I'll get to see your ugly mug. <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope so. You will yeah. be right. I will be. That'll yeah, be we'll a, see each other. Yeah, that'll be about two weeks before I'm up and out of here full time. But gonna uh, be, uh, gonna be a big transition. Yeah, yeah. We haven't really talked about that too much, but still have a few irons in the fire right now. But uh, yeah, definitely gonna be a big transition going from doing this full time. I really haven't talked about it on the podcast, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I can mention that in uh, less than a month now, I gave my notice about a month ago, but in less than a month, I'll be transitioning, moving about five hours away from where I am now. And you know what? Sometimes Pete, you're shaking your head and we'll get into our guest today, but uh, sometimes you just got to do things that are, you know, what's best for you in life. And yeah, we'll talk hey, about that. Don't, don't tell don't tell me that. I'm in the eighth continent. Yeah, you still on assignment in the eighth continent. How's that going? Still out, still out here. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm enjoying every every, uh, every minute of it over here. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. Have you got out to explore much or no? Yeah, a bunch. I actually just found a hot spring last last week, which was uh, wicked cool. I uh, got up into some higher elevation in the snow. It was awesome. So, oh, nice. I, uh, once I'm once I'm back, everything's settled though. You know, we'll definitely do a talk and, and share about the whole experience over here. Yeah, definitely. It was the uh, is there much snow right now on the ground out there? Uh, so right now, looking at my window, there's nothing. Um, but you can look into the mountains and see it. Awesome, awesome. Must be getting ready to hit the uh, the slopes when they when you can. Yep. Yeah. Actually, I found a slope that was already open. There's people going uh, last weekend, but I mean that's hours north of where I am. So cool. Well, let's get into it. Our today's guest spent 21 years full-time law enforcement in the state of New Hampshire and has been part-time for about another 11 to 12 after that. And he's currently a police chief in northern New Hampshire. He can kill you from another... Co- <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. He can kill you from another area code. He can out, he's out there tracking people in the middle of the woods and tracking animals. You did what? The one deployment overseas as a two, two. with two. A, with a uh, private security company. Yeah. The man, the myth, the legend himself, Pete Pelletier. Pete, what's going on, man? Happy to be here. Awesome. Was, I'm glad to have you. I was vastly relieved to see there wasn't a brown leather couch in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's not one of those interviews. <laughs> well, this is, this is not a casting couch. So. <laughs> I, I just have my concerns, that's all. <laughs> but uh, no, it's uh, Phil's dad is, I decided to join us on the uh, in the podcast and have a, a good episode, good conversation. Pete, what would you bring over there today to drink? So I brought uh, <clears throat> something I just picked up just not just not long ago. Um, Northwoods Brewing Company, and the, the label is Trapper's Pack New England IPA. Kind of fits you, perfect. Yeah, it does actually. I you know I've got antlers in a in a woven uh, basket with straps on it, and it's not quite as cool as mine. My particular Trapper's <laughs> Pack is uh, has hot pink straps on it. <laughs> People wonder why I have I, I do a lot of stuff with hot pink. It's like well. Are you tempted to steal this? And everybody says no. And I'm like, well, it's working. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's good then. Yeah. Have you had that one before? 
Uh, I've had it in the last week or so. Yep. Yeah. So. Nice. Today I have the Stowe Craft Seltzer. Phil, have you had this one before? Nope. No. Nope, I have not. I had one uh, about a couple weeks ago now, and it's actually pretty good. I think it's probably better than the uh, White Claws, but... You're going to open this like synchronized? Oh, yeah. Ready? Ready? Shot on, exactly. the T, on the T of two. Ready? All right. Five, four, three, two, one. Nice. <laughs> what, do you got, what do you got going on over there, Philly? Well, today I got a uh, Lost Coast Hazy IPA. From uh, Lost Coast Brewery, which is out of uh, Eureka, California. Oh, so it's out there on the Eighth Continent. Yeah, exactly. It's way out here. It's good though. It's there's you can find a lot of the uh, AZ IPAs out here. It's getting it's getting pretty big. Yeah. So I'll uh, raise my raise my class to you guys, like I like I can toast. <laughs> we raised ours as well. Cheers, boys. So yeah, you decide to finally come on the show. No, we've been talking about it for a uh, for a while now. I'm glad to have you here. Yeah, no, I've been anxious to do it. And, of course, now I do it, and now you're going to leave, so. <laughs> well, you, you were just one of the uh, last ones I had to get before I leave. Yeah, okay, yeah. So. <laughs> no, it's been been looking forward to being on. Before we get this interview started, let's get into, uh, let's get that prefrontal cortex all fired up in that brain of yours, all right? Okay, if it's there, we'll see. <laughs> favorite book? Oh, favorite book. Gee, um, be a toss-up between... Probably a, um, I know the Bible's got to be one of my favorites. Um, you know, it's just a lot of good lessons in there. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, on the secular side, oh, gee, yeah, you caught me on that one. That's I, all right. I, I've got a lot of good favorites on there. You know, I really like Tolkien's writing, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. who wrote like The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings and all that. Yep. Um, just the, the, the vocabulary and the descriptiveness, you know, just, it takes him, you know, it, you, you go down, like you go across like three or four pages where he's just describing a meadow that somebody's walking into. And it's just like, he just gets into the weeds, into the, no, no pun intended, but into the details <laughs> yeah, yeah. of, of the description of it. And it's just, he, the guy had so much talent, you know? Um, so that's, uh, I, I guess stuff by Tolkien, um, I was just reading somebody else too that I really enjoyed. Um, actually, I, I, I guess as opposed to books, probably about themes instead, I really love reading about the days of sale. Okay. Back in the 17 and 1800s when, boy, you know, it's like you're, you're out there on, on a sailing ship in the ocean yep. and, uh, you know, to, to see it's how hard that job was. Funny you say that because my cousin's last names are Melville right. and they're, they're, far descendants of Herman Melville. Oh, no kidding. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So it's funny you say that, but you're more into, you're more into nonfiction. Yeah. More yeah. into the nonfiction than into the fiction. Yeah. So. All right. All right. What else can we ask you? Favorite super, uh, superhero character. I, I don't even have one. Oh, come on. Well, nothing, when, I was, huh? when I was 12, I had Aquaman and I had a couple <laughs> of comic books, but it's like, I've really gotten away from superheroes. I, mean, I, I, I kind of like the real life heroes. Yeah. You know? and, and I get it. Everybody's like big into, all these different superheroes. I have not kept track with any of the superhero movies that have come out. No, no Marvel or anything of, like that. Huh? No, no, the Batman stuff. I, I'm totally culturally illiterate. On that, so. <laughs> all right. I can accept that. Yeah. I can accept that. You're an, obviously an IPA guy. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I got, uh, so I'm, I'm a third generation IPA guy. <laughs> and the reason, the reason I say that is my younger son, Paul got, yeah. 
Phil got, got into the got into the fancy craft beers and stuff, and then he got Phil hooked, and then Phil got me hooked. So that's so you got that's a third that, that way. So I'm the third one. Yeah, okay. So. Well, <clears throat> nice. All right. So you became police officer. Well, actually, you grew up here up in Northern New Hampshire, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lived here since I was 14. I was born in Nashua, and uh, then uh, we moved up into the North Country in um, in 1978 uh, AD. <laughs> I, apparently i have to say that now so. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right <laughs> all right so i'm 78 you moved up here and uh you're what one of how many uh there were five of us five of you okay yep. and you're the only police officer that came out besides your your brother is a part-time my mom. younger brother is a part-time policeman too mm-hmm. yep he was a career marine yep. and uh, came out and continued to serve as a part-time policeman all right so what uh what made you want to get into policing it was weird. Um, I I was originally a paramedic. Um, I had been an EMT. I started with Berlin EMS uh, back in the day, and then I I became I went to paramedic school, got my degree and stuff, and and I was working uh, around uh, the Lakes region for uh, Stewart's Ambulance. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> I, you know, when, when you're when you're an EMT, you go to all the crash scenes, you go to all the all the you know, the, the major assault scenes, all that kind of stuff. And you're always running into the cops. And so I started to befriend police officers. I started to get familiar with some of them. And, and there was a particular fella in uh, the lakes region at Meredith PD who, um, just really seemed to be, uh, not only a, a professional, but also a pretty cool dude. And, um, I finally asked him if I could ride along because I was getting more and more curious about police work. And, uh, so he, it actually didn't work out while he was um, a Meredith policeman to do a ride along because he was in the process to be a chief in another town. And then when he got the chief's job, he gave me a shout and says, yeah, jump in the car with me. We'll take a few rides. And so I did. And I was immediately hooked. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it, with EMS, you you sit around, basically, you, you, you train, but you can only train so much. And you're waiting for something to happen. Where earn money sleeping? Yeah, pretty, yeah, I know, I know. Dozing for dollars. <laughs> yeah, <right? So laughs> exactly. Almost as good as firemen. Just so, kidding. We love all you guys. I, I love my firemen. I love my EMTs. So, um, but yeah, so we used to. Um, he just he just got me like you know what I realized is I can wait for something to happen or I can go out and make something happen and mm-hmm. uh, you can do that as a police officer. You can go out and find something happening. Yep. Well, that's good though. I mean that that good that good community contact and that positive interaction with them is mm-hmm. probably what you know. If the if the guy was a, I'm not going to say a, a dink, if you just kind of blew you off, you probably would have never have had that that good contact to actually want to go out there and you know pursue that career. Absolutely. You yeah. know. So, yeah. what year did you uh, become a cop? So i I started as a part timer in 1986. I was also dispatching. I, I really had a, a thing for law enforcement. Um, I had been dispatching since 1985 for another agency on a part-time basis just during the summer. And then I got a job with a, one of the local sheriff's offices um, down around lakes, the lakes region. Yep. And I was dispatching for them as well on a part-time basis. And so obviously it's more and more contact with the police all the time. And uh, then I got certified as a part-time police officer. That friend of mine from Meredith, who was the chief now in another place, put me on. So I, I would... Um, he scheduled me for like um, the Saturday and Sunday day shift, and I would. It's an eight-hour shift, and I would come in two hours early and leave two hours late because <laughs> yeah. I just. You know, he finally had to pull the leash back on that, but I was just having a ball out there. So, oh, well, it's funny how that works, you know. Like you, you have all this much time you want to dedicate to the job right. when you first get started, and you're out there trying to learn as much as you can. And right. how was the uh, part-time academy back then when you first did it? 
it was it was quick and easy and simple. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I think back now, John, to how unprepared I was, thank God I never even wrote a ticket the whole time I was a I was a part timer. <laughs> All and and the most serious call I ever had was they were town they were they were vehicles at the town beach that didn't have town stickers and. You know, I, I actually called a trooper and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And he was like, there's no problem here. Just blow it off. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, it's funny how it works. You yeah. know, probably had no training when you were actually, how long was your FTO? Did you even have an FTO period? Not really long. It was the right along period. And then I went through the part-time academy and then he gave me the keys pretty much and, you know, made me proud. And I went to a, a crash where a snowmobile hit a car or something and, um, I completely messed up the report, didn't do it. The chief <laughs> called me back in. He was kind of pissed about it. And, but he was, he was good because, you know, he knew I didn't know. And so he was, yeah. he was actually, he's a really good guy. I still talk to him once in a while to this day. He's a good, very, very good dude. That's a uh, Louis Brunel out okay. of uh, Sandwich PD. And he's retired long since now and works for another, for a private company. Oh, no. Uh, Great guy. That's Great good. Guy. That's good to hear. And really then you, him. you did what? A couple of years doing that and then got yep. in. You took the test to become a uh, full-time cop? Yeah. So I was still working as a paramedic uh, down in Meredith with Stewart's. And um, <clears throat> how did you like that? I I enjoyed it. Yeah. It's just I needed to be busier and it, it wasn't as busy. You could go a couple of days without a call. And, really? You know, we're working like 24 on, 48 off. So you could go a couple of shifts without having had to go on a call or use your skills or anything. And, yeah. You know, if I had that to do over again, I think I would have probably gone to a, a busier place, you know, Boston, New York, Miami. I have a, I had a cousin who was down in Miami as a paramedic and uh, I just, I've never been willing to go far from home. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was probably what kept me from going to the cities and stuff. Well, that's all right though. I mean, you kind of, you probably did learn a little bit more than you, you know, and you think as well, working in those smaller agencies and when they're, when the call volume's not as low, you can actually take your time to, to probably discuss it with people instead of going from call to call to call. Right. You have time to debrief and and whatnot about what you did. And yep. so you probably had a little bit more knowledge than you give yourself credit for for doing that. Yeah. And, and a lot of times too, you know, when you're in the rural areas, you're probably going to be dealing with a, a smaller hospital, mm -hmm. which means they don't have as much staff, which means when you bring your patient in, you probably your patient care job isn't quite done yet. They need you in the ER because they need the extra set of hands in a critical case. Yeah. And then I'm, and that's, I, I learned by watching doctors. I really enjoyed, there were some doctors I loved to watch them work. It's, it's terrible if somebody got hurt, Yeah. but these guys were, were artists and they did great work and I befriended a couple of them and which was handy because later on, one of them did about like four or five different surgeries on me over the years. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of cool. It's like I, I knew that he was good because I'd watched him do his work. <laughs> oh, that's funny. No, it's I, I've always enjoyed the medical side of things as well. It's always just been interesting and, and neat because it's always developing and mm -hmm. always constantly changing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, I mean, especially since, you know, I started, I became an EMT back in 2008, 2009, I think, when I actually past the class and uh and even medical technologies progressed since then to where it is now and we're we're talking barely 10 years you yeah know, 11 years yeah. and it's just the things that they would tell you that, i mean when i first took my emt class i remember them telling us never put on a tourniquet yep the tourniquet thing what never we can lie yeah and never put on a tourniquet and, and they're going off of you know and and, and no medical technology hadn't really developed from the beginning of the you know the war on terror to that point in 0809 mm -hmm. for 
for civilian civilian EMS to actually pick it up. So they're going yeah. off of, I'm not going to say all the way back to World War II and Vietnam statistics, but that's a lot of where they were, you know, they were kind of going back that far. Yeah. Because they would say, well, back in Vietnam and in World War II, if you put tourniquets on, they would die because of the tourniquet. Yeah, well, their, evacua- their evacuation time was also days longer you know and stuff like that so you'd have the tourniquet on for years but i just remember hearing that and they would tell us not to put them on i'm like but how do you stop the bleeding obviously exactly yeah (laughs) all bleeding stops eventually it stops (laughs) yeah you don't you don't want to be on the you don't want to be on the long end of that exactly exactly yeah they used to they used to give us this big rubber band and that was a quote-unquote tourniquet and you still see people use it for like blood draws so it stops the venous circulation but Mm -hmm. it doesn't do crap to stop arterial (laughs) are you talking like those blue rubber bands like the blue rubber bands they come in different colors but they're they're a when you when you lay it all out, it's probably about nine inches, ten inches long, but but there's like Velcro the last couple of inches okay. of, of each end. And it and so you the idea is you're supposed to wrap this around the limb that's been amputated or whatever, and then you're gonna um and, and that's gonna stop the circulation. And I'm thinking, wow, and, and of course they're telling us tourniquet's a last resort, you're gonna lose that limb. If you do that, you have to be prepared to lose that limb. And it's like if it's not there, then it's not really my problem right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. But you know pain so, is the patient's problem too. <laughs> but I'm looking at I'm looking at this rubber band thinking, wow, you know, you could really hurt somebody with this, but you really can't. No. It's like, no, it's just, no, it's harmless. And you know, then they they taught us like using um cravats for you know, with a stick, find a stick. Like, yeah, this yeah. sticks everywhere. You know, yeah, they're all dry and broken. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> find a stick and turn. You know, turn turn the cravat with a stick until the circulation stops. Okay, well, that better than nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly. Basically what you do now, right? So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the lives that could have been saved with the timely application of a tourniquet—it's shameful. And all this time, the, the ORs, the uh, surgeons in ORs were using tourniquets when they had to do surgeries on limbs. Um. And then they would, you know, turn the circulation back on. It was a routine thing. But the disconnect between the OR and the ER and the field. It's, it's, like, it's just huge. The, yeah. It's like, who was responsible for that cluster? Exactly. It's crazy. And they say, you know, I've listened to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman talk. Yes. And he talks about, because uh, he's wrote, he's written uh, on killing and on combat. Yep. And I know that, that guy. Yeah. I know that there's one more that he's written as well. But uh he he talks about the only thing that's keeping the murder rate down right now is Once. the medical technology. Yep. That is the only thing. He goes, you put the medical technology from the 50s and 60s, the murder rate's going to be sky high. Yep, exactly. Yeah, the, the medical care has gone up. It's just incredible. And as much as we hate, uh, you know, I, the price that we paid to get to where we are on technology, that right. we paid that price in blood, dude. Yep. You know, there are people who didn't live and, and you know, mistakes were mistakes and lessons were learned written in blood and it's just it's a sad thing but um but now if you get shot and you can get to an er quickly enough um you know you have a really great chance of surviving i mean the the stats i don't know i don't remember the stats i heard some crazy stupid number about the survivability of gunshots if it's just one or you know obviously the the more shot you get the less likely it's going to be a good outcome right exactly i don't know what it is either but yeah, no, you're right. It's just the, that advanced medical technology, and we did pay that price, but we've we've learned a lot from it. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> when I was a kid, I used to watch the History Channel all the time, and I watch Modern Marvels, and yeah. uh, and they talk about from the Cold War. They were talking talking about you know the technology that was developed 
during the Cold, the Cold War for the purpose of war itself. Yep. And I remember, I don't know what the actual uh, episode was, but they were talking about the propellant that's in uh, behind airbags. Yeah. And it was developed because of the propellant that they had developed during the Cold War. And like, well, when the war kind of stopped, it, they had to find another use for it. For it. <laughs> and it, just stuff like that. Yeah. You know, the, the actual technology that comes from, you know, wars and whatnot. But if it wasn't for the war on terror, they probably would still be telling us to not put on tourniquets, you know. Yep. But, uh, yeah. So, what year was it that you actually applied to be full-time? So, <clears throat> um, 1988. It was probably it was the fall of 87. Um, I guess when I put my app in. Uh, because I got hired in February 14th of 88. Okay. Um, but my mother was given singing lessons to the wife of a guy I used to be an EMT with in Berlin who had gone to the police department. And so he knew who his wife was getting his singing lessons from. And he, uh, he told his wife to tell my mother there were openings in the PD if I was interested. Um, yeah. Because I guess he had heard probably from my mother through his wife, again, that I was working part-time as a policeman. And um, so I, I got that. And, you know, I was... I enjoyed it. I enjoyed living in the Lakes region, um, but I really wanted to come back home near my parents. Nobody was really close to my parents. I had a sister who was about 25, 30 miles away. Okay. But I wanted to be a lot closer. Um, you know, my younger brother was in the service and, and the older siblings that we have lived quite a bit further downstate. So mm -hmm. I just want to be close and help, you know, help the old man stack wood and, and do that kind of stuff. They were starting to get in their elderly yeah. years anyway. So, so yeah, so I, I put in, um, I'd, I'd actually tried out for state police in 85 and again in 86, and I totally blew it. I was not ready to be a policeman at that Physical time. or um, oral no, board? No, not the physical side. The, the oral board, I, I completely, <laughs> I, I took that so personally, and, I, and it was very plain that I was taking everything they were doing personally. It was an adversarial board, and they got under my skin, and they knew how to just keep going. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> It wasn't awesome then, but looking back on it now, it's like. What were the questions they were asking you back when you took that one? Oh, uh, you know, they pretty much the same questions they ask now. Do you smoke pot? Yeah. Like, no, I don't. I, you know, come on, come on, you've tried it. No, I haven't, and yeah. I, I just hadn't. It just never interested me. It's like you know, and then I'm getting attacked because now they, you know, they're accusing me of lying to them because I didn't smoke. You know, I'm saying I didn't smoke pot, and I'm like, I'm saying I didn't smoke pot because <laughs> I didn't smoke pot. And, and I got pretty, uh, I got cranky with them. They get cranky back. And eventually they just like, you know, they ended the interview. It's like, it was, um, it was questions like that. It's like, there was no right answer. You know, would yeah. you arrest your own mother? Sure. I would. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah. so they saw you coming from a mile away. Yeah. Sort oh, of thing. Yeah. yeah. They, they knew right away and, and good for them. That's, that's the, that's the value of the adversarial oral board really to yeah. me. It's like, you know, you just see how the guy thinks on his feet or girl and, um, and you move along with that. So, yeah, you know, can they can they defend an answer and can they give you a common sense reply? And if they can't, then I think I've had one of those adversarial boards, and it was absolutely just eating at me when I had to go shake their hand at the end. <laughs> at the end I'm just like, you mother effers, <laughs> you I know. know. I, know. And I still do. Well, I didn't do one uh, this year. Um, I think, yeah, I didn't do one this year because of you know COVID. Yeah, but. Um, I, I still do the adversarial oral board at the PD when we, it's one of the first things that somebody goes through and you know, the poor suckers, I mean, they, they come in and there's like six people behind a table and some of them are in <laughs> uniform and some of them have tattoos on their face. And some of them is like, you know, it's like, I, I have a very, very diverse group of people that I use for yeah. oral boards, males, females, you know, and 
and all different races if I can. And, and, uh, I just want them to, I, I want to see how people react yeah. to people. And, um, you know, of course the, the chair for the candidate is like this. It's, it's a big room. It's a really big room and it's like a meeting room. And, and, uh, there's a, a single red chair in the middle of the floor, about 30 feet from the interviewing, <laughs> from the interviewing people, uh, from the table they're at. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody will walk in and pick up their chair and move it closer. And the, whoever's leading the oral board, their job is to like, why did you move my chair? Put it back. That's pretty presumptive, don't you think? <laughs> Presumptuous. And, and so like immediately they're under the gun. They fail that, right? Yeah. It's like, it's just like, um, and then I want to see if they can speak up because some, some people will sit there and you can't and hear just them at like all. really super mousy voices. And it's like, no, you got to speak up. You're talking 30 feet across. So then whoever runs the oral board and there's a guy that we both know who has run a couple of my oral boards for me, does a great job. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, he, you know, it's his job to, to make sure that, um, we're, um, that, that the candidate is, you know, doing what he needs to be doing. So everything from moving the chair to speaking up to sitting up. It was perfect. One day we had a guy slouching wicked bad, you know, and he's like, excuse me, we're going to stop this interview right now. I'm going to tell you to sit up straight. What the hell's the matter with you? And instantly bolt upright. You know, it's like, yeah, you look pretty comfortable. <laughs> you know? Oh my God. It's, like, it's funny though. The, uh, I mean, when I took, when I became a cop, there was 160 people that, uh, that had taken the exam with me. And I think I, I know I scored number 16 on it after, you know, the end of the written the PT and all that, they ranked me at number 16 and, uh, the people that can't get to apply now. Yeah. It's, it's absurd. No one's applying to be the, you know, be a police officer, which I, frank, brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Frankly, don't really, I, I completely understand why someone might not want to be a police officer now. Sure. And, but the just the the lack of preparedness that some people come into the the actual job with. Oh yeah, it's it's absurd. I don't know if it's a, if it's the the lack of life they just have in them. Maybe they don't have that much life experience. Right. But, I mean, it's it's absurd. And the first oral board that I passed was my first PD, and. That one wasn't an adversarial board. I went in there. Mm -hmm. It was literally just sit down. They were in a room kind of like this, mm -hmm. you know, at a one of those big, you know, brown folding tables. And it was just like have a conversation with them. And so I don't know if I completely agree with those types, but I, I, I don't see anything wrong with them. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, so that was what, 88, you went to the academy. Yeah. How long was the academy back then? Ten weeks. Ten weeks. Yeah. Was that a PE still or what? No, no, I wasn't at PS. No, come on. <laughs> Not that old. No, no, no. The guys who trained me had gone to PS. <laughs> but uh, no, I it was uh, it was right in Concord. It yeah. was a lot smaller then than it is now. Uh, we didn't have the giant wing with the the big you know the big fake garage where they do the graduations and the the running track upstairs of it and all that. Yeah. They didn't have all that. That was uh, that was built a few years later. I think it was in the nineties they put that up. Okay. So. Okay. And so after those 10 weeks, you came right back into your, uh, your FTO period. And how was your introduction to working with the guys at the, at the PD back then? Was there any sort of hazing or anything like that to the new guys that had happened? You know, I, I didn't get hazed. Not that I remember. And I remember being just a little jealous that one, <laughs> one guy who got hired with me, he came in one morning and, and the, 
deputy chief at the time was known to be a prankster and he had he'd used casting material and gauze and he'd gone around the padlock on this guy's locker oh, so he geez. couldn't get into his locker it was hilarious <laughs> you know he ended up pulling the hinges off so he could just get to his uniform and get dressed but i remember being a little jealous that nobody actually ever screwed with me like that it was it was kind of weird you yeah know? as close as it came to hazing we were it was one of my first days on the job, and we had to go out and, and grab a guy who had stolen a vehicle during the night, and he was supposed to be a felon and really dangerous. And a detective hands me, detective is holding a shotgun. He says, are you good with a shotgun? I'm like, yeah. You know, yeah, of course I'm going to say yes, yeah, yeah. right? Um, I hadn't really fired them. but I'd used a 410 a lot when I was growing <laughs> up. He's got a 12-gauge pump, and he's like, you got you got to be really good with a shotgun. I was like, I'm, I'm you know. I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm it. I'm giving the shotgun. So, yeah. Um, they, somebody else took it away from me before we actually did the raid, but it was, it was funny. So, yeah. There's no real hazing, but that's about as close as it ever came is this guy just, you know, interrogating me about whether I can use a shotgun. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think the, you know, I know there's such a P, PC culture nowadays to hazing and all that. And I think that a part of it is needed. I mean, me personally, I think that a lot of it is needed because, you know, it may be a little bit before you go out and call together. And if you can't handle the hazing, how am I supposed to know that you're going to be able to handle yourself out on the street? Yeah. And for me, the other side of that too, or, or another good reason for hazing. And I mean, look, we, we can, it can all be taken too far. And exactly. it has been, which is why, you know, some people ruined it for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, the, the hazing keeps somebody humble. And yep. if you're new and you think you know it all and it's like, get out of my way. I just got out of the academy. I know better than this 12 year guy or whatever. Yeah. That guy's not humble. He's going to get himself or somebody else killed, you know, and a little hazing goes a long way in situations like that. Yep. Surely so, does. Completely does. And so tell me about your first couple of years on the, uh, on the job. Was it everything that you expected it was going to be? <laughs> no. Is it ever? <laughs> no, not so, at all. No. It was completely different for me. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, it took me a good couple of years to get used to that fishbowl effect. Right. I, and I can't, I, to this day, I can't even, I'm not even used to it. I hate it. Yeah. Everyone, you're driving down the street kind of like, I don't say you're minding your own business because obviously you're, you're looking around and everything. Sure. But you notice everybody is looking at you. Not, that is one of my, Number one pet peeves. Yeah, on job. yeah I know. I, yeah, it's you know, I I'm actually kind of a shy person, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, and um, and I I don't like conflict. It's like, what the hell am I doing as a policeman, right? I'm shy and I don't like conflict. And here I am. I got to go out and talk to strangers and confront them about their <laughs> naughty behavior or whatever it is. And you know, but I've always been a little um less um sociable or a little you know just kind of withdrawn or you know I don't want. Anyway, so, yeah, I get you. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so I'm out there, and I'm yeah. I, the first couple of years are actually fun. It was it was so I I I consider that people who get hired around around my time, we saw the last of the good days of police work, you know, and there was more camaraderie, um, and it was uh, it was just a different culture, and and, and it, you know everybody wasn't out to get you. You're talking um, about like the people you got not no ones you got hired with, but around those certain years yeah like and then the ones that actually completed their career like right at the end right. like that was the end of it yeah i think yeah. that i think that i saw uh and, and people who get hired around my time yeah uh saw the last of the good days of police work yeah. you know that um and and it wasn't all that long ago that it really started to turn the other way i mean i i i, I toward the end of my time uh full time uh, about year maybe 15 or so I, I was starting to realize this is really not as fun as it used to be anymore it's just the liability and 
the amount of CYA paperwork you do. And, and, you know, none of it's bad per se. It's just, you know, can we just move on and go catch another bad guy? I'd rather do that than sit here and do paperwork for another three hours. Yeah. It's absurd. The amount of just Monday morning quarterbacking. Yeah. The amount of stuff you have to fill out for, uh, for one arrest, you know, if it's somebody arrested on a warrant, yeah, it may not take that long, yeah, but it's quick. let's say for somebody that you have to do a warrant for and then go out and arrest and then do all the other packets because it's a uh, a felony and it yeah. takes, I mean, it could take honestly days for yeah. one arrest to be completed. Yeah. And that is absurd. I kind of think, and, and I don't know, maybe I'm sure somebody's going to listen and scream at the radio for, or from time to time <laughs> at the radio. That's all right. They I'm usually do. Myself, so. That's okay. Um, but you know, the, you know, uh, I, I kind of look at it sometimes as a lot of this stuff was deliberately drafted by the other side, by the defense attorneys and stuff, just yeah. to make it more difficult for us to do our job and to give a defendant a better chance to get get away with it. And I'm I'm all for a vigorous defense, and I'm all for making sure somebody actually committed the crime. Um, <clears throat> but you know, at some point, it's like where do you draw that line? You know, where you know you you have a defense attorney who celebrates getting a rapist acquitted and somebody who clearly did it you yeah. know um that's just it's just crazy and i've had a couple of those in my years and yeah i know just, you had one right down the street from here wasn't it um wasn't there the one that involved the mcdonald's right down the street either way yeah. i thought that there was but uh yeah no you're right i think a lot of it is just the cya for me now well it's all the cya paperwork that you have to do because yeah. i'm not even going to say that somebody screwed up when yeah. they you know a few months or a year prior to whatever arrest that you had, but it's just that that paperwork from the defense attorneys that that gets you jammed up. And you know, God forbid, I you know I didn't send this piece of paper out on Friday and I mm-hmm. sent it on a Monday morning, and now you're going to lose the case because of it. Yeah, because the sky is falling, and it's like, oh, yeah, FFS. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying try not to swear. You know, I mean, I, you know, I <laughs> that's Jesus. okay. I love Jesus, and I say fuck a lot. You know? <laughs> That's try not okay. to swear on the, on the just, air with you. So no, don't worry about it. Yeah, all right. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> don't I'm surprised that either. <laughs> if anybody, uh, <laughs> people, some people do listen to this, so yeah. it's not a bad thing. There's a few. Yeah, there's a few people <laughs> that listen here. Actually, more than I, uh, I've gotten a few messages from people uh, across the country that have listened, and, and it's and across the world I've seen that have listened as well. It's uh, I don't know why people listen to me. I mean, I wouldn't want to listen to myself. I don't think you got a, but, you got a good thing going. <laughs> you, you and uh, and. Uh, Eight continent boy, <laughs> yeah, Philly boy. You know he's, uh, you know, you guys both have a good thing going. You had a good, you have a good vibe, and um, you know, you, I like how you focus on mental health for police and stuff. And oh yeah, it's absolutely crucial, and especially now. I mean, the with the rates of suicide among first responders in general, you know, and and all, you know, it's like look at how things are with with you know portland still mm-hmm. at war it's been what how many months now that they've been basically at war mm-hmm. since may so and and i don't I don't know how those guys are doing it and i am looking for full-time people uh, so <laughs> um but uh yeah i don't know how they're doing it I, I i would not go in every day and i just saw a video just recently where a protester walked up to a police officer and police officer i am quitting in two cruiser. weeks or whatever yeah, it was yeah, yeah yeah you know he said yeah I'm, I'm leaving in a couple of weeks and and, um, you know, it's like, what's, what, what are you waiting for? I don't, two I, months. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. I'm leaving in two months, two months from now I'm out of here. I'm like, what are you waiting for? Get out. Yeah. And I don't, I don't get it either. I mean, I appreciate it because, you know, mental health to me is a, uh, 
it's a very important topic and you know i kind of talk about it every single episode yeah. and that was not the focus of when i we started this yep. at all it wasn't even on the radar and it just kind of it's always been a passionate subject for me sure um so i i do like talking about it uh, but yeah it, it's you, i don't know what those guys are doing out west i not to say they don't know what they're doing but i just i uh, how, how, how they yeah how are they handling it no no effing idea no and they're under so much scrutiny and it's to the point where i mean if that were me and i'm out west and i'm working or god forbid it comes here and we're under those same sorts of circumstances the reason why i'm going to work is number one i gotta, I gotta pay my bills yep and yeah there are good people that we are sworn to protect and i'm not going to say that that's a good answer you have to pay my bills but you know, at that point in time where I'm under so much scrutiny, it's probably the only focus that I have. Just making my making my bills, making sure I don't wind up in debt, uh, no more than I already am, and <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and, and just focusing on getting home at night. And there are good people that are, you know, that do ha- still own businesses in that area that that are trying to just raise their family in you know the Portland. Or Seattle area, obviously, that there's good people everywhere. So, and just to to help them out and protect them as much as possible. I mean, yep. but like you said, you know, just to have policing has changed so much. I mean, back when you when you first started, it took. I mean, the cell phones they probably were a thing. I can imagine, but not in the eighties. <laughs> no, I mean, I think what the first cell phone came out, what eighty eight, eighty nine, where it was like the big. You know, it was in a bag. Yeah, well, they had the car phones like those. I remember my grandfather having one, <laughs> and uh, those car phones in the bag. But uh, now everybody's got one. It's always turned on you, and I can't. It aggravates me when I see it, but I just let it. I let it slide off because I really don't care. Yeah. Oh, for those halcyon days before cell phones and cell cameras, <laughs> it's like you know what? I don't care. I mean, I I've never been like aggressively filmed by anybody um, mm-hmm. on the job. <clears throat> And it, I don't really think it's going to bother me unless somebody's like right up in my face with it. It's like, you want to film me? Go ahead. I don't yeah, care. I, I, I think a camera keeps everybody on their best behavior. Cameras that way are a lot like firearms, actually. And, yeah. You know, um, an armed society is a polite society. And I mean, I've definitely made snide comments when somebody's been. Sure. I'm, I'm not going to say I haven't because I oh, have. Yeah. And there's on YouTube. I can find them right now. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's like you said, it's, I think it does keep people on their best behavior for mm-hmm. much as possible. But me personally, I don't act any different. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm not going to change how I work. I mean, you know, and if I'm, if I have to tell you the truth and I have to drop a truth bomb on somebody and, and it involves, you know, some expletives, well, that is what it is. You know, I mean, I'm usually very polite to people and I, I, I'm easy going. I'm, I'm I'm wicked easy going. I probably shouldn't be a policeman, but you know, <laughs> I'm probably worst policeman I know. But you know, it's like I try to pe- I try to treat people with respect. But you know, if if they're giving it to, you, I had one guy calling me a mother f, you know, over and over and over one night, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I I can help you with this problem. He's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I says, I says, you keep your mother off the street, and I won't. <laughs> I cheese so, him. Yeah, I, I came out with the whole thing and. And he went into vapor lock, and uh, yeah. I'll, I'll Sometimes you, you have to speak at their level. Here. I'll tell you who it was later. No, it's all right. so. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you just got to speak to their level. Yeah, and yeah. it's not a and it's not a condescending, you know, remark or anything like that. It's just, uh, 
It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, you just, you just got to speak to their level and it helps get the point across. Yeah, but exactly. Yep. So. Tell me about some of the uh, hot, couple of hot calls you had when you first hot calls. came on the job. You remember them? You wiped those um, cobwebs away. Yeah. So a long time ago, uh, the, the first like actual gun call I think we ever went to was some guy had, some guy had run into the PD um, while being shot at. Um, he ran into the lobby and he's being shot at by another guy. And it's probably a dispute over drugs, um, probably Coke. Well, Coke was making its, its, uh, entry back then. Did the uh, building get hit or did he? Um, not sure. I, I don't remember if the building got hit. I don't remember if anyone actually took the time to go look for bullet holes I and mean, they would have seen him in the windows, but, um, but the dispatcher definitely heard at least two funk, two gunshots. And this guy come in white as a sheet. He's shooting at me. He's shooting at me. And, and all this kind of stuff. And so we ended up surrounding the house uh, at first light. And we ended up calling him out, you know. But I remember the, uh, the the top detective at the time, you know, grabbing individual patrolmen. And I was one of them. And sticking them. Okay, this is your position. Don't leave it and draw your gun. Make sure you're ready to go, you know. And so we're like surrounded the house. And then the guy gets called out. And then we, you know, of course being rooks and you know it's like gosh that guy's got to be 25 yards away and you know and now he's outside and we're all gonna like charge right at him because we're stupid yeah you know (laughs) but um you know it it was there was there was that one that was you know that was kind of a cool one it was like you know get your heart going a little oh yeah definitely when you're that when you're brand new to the job and it's kind of one of the reasons why you wanted to uh become a cop yeah you know what i mean oh yeah it's the adrenaline and there's a definite call i mean you know by and large um the Police don't hire somebody who's not a risk taker uh, to some extent. And mm-hmm. Lord knows we all take a risk um, from time to time on the job. Just, <laughs> you know, whether it's a good idea or not, we're just like, well, I'll do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'll, I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with being first. That's my favorite spot, being yeah, first. Yeah. I love it. Yep. But, uh, yeah, so you raised, you uh, rose to the rank of, what, corporal there? <laughs> yeah. Rose yeah. all the way up to. So. <laughs> so they had a wicked turnover at the at the PD, and a lot of people retired right about the time that a, a, a new crew of us was getting hired. Yeah, and so back then they had six sergeants, and then two patrolmen under each sergeant. Uh, under they had three shifts running, right days, yeah. evenings, and mids, and they had two sergeants and two patrolmen, sometimes three patrolmen on every shift. Okay, and uh, <clears throat> at some point, as all us new guys were getting hired. The older sergeants were pulling the plug and retiring and going off. And so they got to a point where they were running out of people to promote from the senior patrolmen. There weren't that many, and then there weren't that many who were qualified. And then so they, they, they made a few sergeants, but then they, they realized, well, by the contract, um, the way the contract reads, we can't hire somebody who's, we can't promote someone to sergeant who's not been a patrolman. I think it was like six years. I don't remember the contract language now. It's a long time ago. So, um, they ended up creating, uh, the rank of corporal, uh, at the PD and then they promoted, um, they promoted me and, and another guy, uh, within a couple of weeks of each other. And we were the first corporals. And then, uh, later on more corporals filled in, but you know, we were taking the place of the junior sergeants basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, so I was, a I was a, right about the time. Not long after I became a corporal, I also became the union rep. Oh, and, that's fine. And part of my job was to tell the chief no, and the chief and I didn't <laughs> get along well. And uh, 
I, I was, um, yeah, so I was a corporal for 11 years. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, some of it, I, I'm not, I'm not going to blame all of it on the union position. I'm not going to blame all of it on the chief. I, I owned a lot of the reason, <laughs> Yeah. but, um, yeah, I saw, I saw quite a few people get promoted past me and stuff. And I just, number one thankless job at any police department is being the union president. Don't ever do it. I did it for four and a half years. Oh my and God. I think I had, I had two or three, uh, grievances in that time and obviously pds have a lot more than that just in yeah. general but yeah you know and a couple of contracts as well and it was just most thankless job and most just aggravating job it is yeah it's it's horrible <laughs> i mean there there were some good times with it but uh not not enough to make it worthwhile yeah and i wasn't like looking to climb the ranks or anything but you know 11 years as it's <laughs> the same rank i mean it's like you know, the Marine Corps calls them terminal lances. You know, oh, yeah. it's like, I think exactly. I was a terminal corporal. I know I was because I left. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you left it. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. You were actually uh, there for the formation of the, uh, the the first SWAT team back in the day, weren't you? 1993. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Is that when you went through sniper school? Yep. Yep. How was that? I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, well, they it really taught me to shoot the hell out of a rifle. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed I still enjoy, you know, putting rounds on the target. Um, and, um, you know, it, it actually, it, it improved a lot of things. It changed the way I looked at a lot of places and things and, and situations. Um, it didn't help my hunting, um, at the time because I, <laughs> that was the, also the period where I, I missed most shots at wild game. So, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, and Phil can tell you all about that. That's like, you know, it yeah, was, yeah. It was embarrassing. Yeah, that's but, all right, though. But yeah, being part of that initial um, emergency response team that was that was cool. Um, you know, we thought we were all that, and of course, <laughs> we we formed it, and we we all got trained up. And I was I was trained as a sniper. I was not trained as an entry guy. Yeah, uh, I never ended up going to any of the entry schools as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I got basically i was just dragged along because they needed extra bodies and houses sometimes it's not always a, a mission for a sniper and so i was always happy to work inside of the uh, inside a vehicle inside a house yeah and uh at some point um totally lost my train of thought that's okay yeah so we're yeah just gonna- so yeah i know you were talking about sniper school and then you know being needed inside the house and just you know working as one of the first guys on the uh on the SWAT yeah. team I'll get it in a second. <laughs> That's all right. No worries. It happens my, to my me too. My mom had Alzheimer's and maybe I'll end up getting her room at the nursing home. It's my turn. So. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but it must have been a uh, – yeah, It was – I mean, it was, what wasn't a – it wasn't a, a, a conversation or a topic that had been around for a long time when – when you first got hired, I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to become a yeah. cop. I love that stuff. Sure. As you know, so it's – that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a police officer. And sure. so it – but for you, it wasn't even around or even probably a pipe dream back then for people. It was. I, I knew about SWAT. Um, it was more the West. PDs and stuff. And I had, uh, there was, when I was younger, uh, like in high school or maybe even a little bit before that, there was a TV program called SWAT and mm-hmm. these guys in blue, navy blue jumpsuits oh, with, yeah. with M16s and. And, you know, I was like all running out the back of an old bread truck and I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, you know, and, that, and then 1993, we're driving around in an old bread truck and, <laughs> yeah. and we had a van for a while and it was just like, we had all these like, hand-me-down vehicles that would break down all the time and the yeah. battery was always dead when we needed them to be. But, um, yeah, it was just, 
that was that was nutty. It was it was uh, we were like it was kind of ragtag for a while, equipment wise and pay wise. We didn't get paid. We we would we would train for food once a month. Yeah, um, boss man would bring us out and um, and treat us to a meal somewhere. So we're all like walking into a restaurant and our black <laughs> BBUs and feeling like we're all that and grabbing lunch together and all that having lunch. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, how was the the sniper school when you first went to that one? Sniper school was great. Um, we went, I had a Ruger M77, which was a pretty good rifle. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't, didn't have a free floated barrel, but it, it actually shot pretty well. And I, I believe through my overzealous cleaning activities, um, that, and, and ignorant, stupid cleaning activity that I probably ruined the, the accuracy on that gun. It was a great gun. I liked it a lot. Um, and, um, how did you so, ruin it? Uh, I think I was, uh, I think I was beating up the inside of the chamber with the cleaning rod because I didn't have a cleaning rod guide. Okay. And so, like, I would I would be running. I'm really aggressive with a brush, and I would be running the brush through, you know, from you know from the both ends bore to the from the bore to the muzzle, and um, and I would I would I, I would hear the rod click on the shoulder of you know like where the bullet enters the barrel of the gun. Yeah. And uh, I would I would hear it click every time it, the rod went forward, and it just never really meant anything to me. I was just like, no, it's just, it's just going up. It's steel. I mean, it's a Teflon <laughs> rod. It's fine. What could possibly happen? And then all of a sudden, my rifle couldn't shoot groups anymore. And it's like, yeah. So it was time for a new gun. I got a Rem 700 heavy barrel. I uh, on the advice of um, Ed Gross at the Sniper School yep. in Keene, um, <clears throat> I got it uh, cryo treated. So they they. Brought the barrel down to like 200 below zero, and then they brought it up to like 200 above zero. They did some kind of like heat and cold thing to it that supposedly realigns the molecules. I'm not a chemist or a physicist, so I really okay. can't speak to it. But um, that Makes rifle, the gun, the gun still went bang. Then that rifle would would put round after round after round into the same hole at 100 yards. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and that was back when uh, the, uh, the actually Gorm PD actually had a sniper. We both went to sniper school together, and that guy way better than me any day of the week yeah he was a fat i've never seen somebody so fast on the trigger he would you know we'd, we'd be shooting like a stress course or something and and he would like come running down he's a former marine and he'd, he'd come running down and plop down behind his rifle and the rifle would be up on his shoulder and the round is downrange in like three quarters of a second i'm like how do you i can't see that fast. <laughs> i can't see that yeah. fast how do you do that you always have guys like that though he never missed that he just, never missed. that guy was right on yeah. yeah yeah you always have guys like that that are just you know they're they're yeah but you know what he sucks at everything else he does <laughs> that guy didn't suck at anything he's, but you know what i mean dude. no yeah, yeah. it's just like you know yeah no yeah he's such a great shot yeah but he can't write a report for shit <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know yeah but uh so the, how long was that just a week back then yeah it was a week-long sniper school then we went to the advanced sniper uh school later on and, yeah and um i i tried to go like every couple of years for um they they started the um oh what was it they started some kind of uh, organization. I can't remember the name of it. I was like a charter member. Um, ASA? And American Sniper Association? Yeah. Was it that or was it? I don't remember. I Honestly, I really don't. Um, they had their own magazine and stuff. But um, I used to go back for the – they had a tournament every year. And then I got into uh, – the team as a whole got into the New England Sniper Challenge. Yeah. The uh, New England SWAT Challenge, I mean. Um, 
Yep. So we used to go down to Mass and other places and compete. And that was always a ball. I just, I, I enjoyed that whole part of it. It was just a good time. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. And so you made a decision at what year to go and apply for state police? Yeah. So um, I was, I was kind of dissatisfied, you know, I was driving around in circles in a small city and, and I was, I was getting work done. I was getting arrested. I was, I was, I felt like I was doing a pretty good job and I just didn't feel um, like, I just kind of felt like I was, I needed to do more. I wanted to do more. And I really liked going into the, into the willy wax, you know, as opposed to driving around the same block, you know, all day long. And it's like summertime, you see the little kids out playing and every time you go by, they're a little dirtier. And then finally <laughs> the parents take them in to wash them up for supper. And, you know, it's time for me to go home too. So, yeah. but um <clears throat> I enjoyed my time at the first PD and then I went to uh, state police after that. Um, and yeah, you know, like I said earlier, I wasn't getting on with the chief and I was just dissatisfied with a lot of things. And, um, so I thought like, uh, being a trooper would be a really great idea. And I'd always, and that was my initial goal, as I said earlier too. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so I ended up, um, I was 37 years old and I, I did, uh, all the, um, I went through the whole process, and I was fortunate enough to get hired with the state police. Wow, at thirty, so a little bit later in life. Yeah, yeah, thirteen and a half years on, and uh, my FTOs were mostly in their twenties. Yeah, and they actually asked me that in an interview. They said, "Look, you know, if we hire you, and your FTOs are probably going to have like five years on the job. How are you going to deal with that with your thirteen? And it, I hadn't really considered that. Um, but I said, oh, you know, I'm going to take direction from my supervisor because that's how it is. And I've, I've not, I've been supervised by younger people before, so I'm not really worried about that. Yeah. Um, but then it, it kind of like, I, it kind of stuck in my mind. And so I, I show up, I show up for, um, for FTO and I'm, I'm in this mode where I don't want to be like, I don't want to be the guy who's like, you know, tells the FTO, just sit back and watch how it's done, kid. Yeah. I didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> So I've been that guy before. I went the other way with it, John. It was it was ridiculous. I I went so far the other way. It's like I didn't know what I was doing out there, and the FTOs are like, "This guy has thirteen years. Has he ever been in a car before? He's like, <laughs> never been out. Never ever made an arrest. Like my my sobriety tests were like crazy. And is this you know, just, just, just like you kind of forgot how to do everything, or I was so busy. I think trying not to be the know-it-all that yeah. I didn't know anything. <laughs> so uh, the only redeeming moment I feel like I had out there was, um, so I got hired, um, I got hired August 31st of 2001. So 11 days later, yeah, right. Um, September 11th happens and I'm on the road. Uh, I, I was on the road at the time. I was on days off when it happened. I called in to ask if, if I needed to come back and they said, no, don't worry about it. We got it covered. And, uh, cause New Hampshire wasn't under attack per se. Right. But, um, so, uh, <clears throat> a couple days later, I'm, I'm back in from days off and, um, and then, you know, there was no, there was no flying at the time. They didn't have any airplanes up. It was kind of a, you know, you, you just don't see that kind of a shit show, you know? Yeah. It was crazy. Nobody knew what was going on. And, you know, there was, everybody's glued to CNN when you're not actually out on the road and stuff. And back then CNN might've been credible. So, um, <laughs> cause it ain't now. You know. So, um, am I going to get you suits? No, you're fine. You're okay, fine. Cool. So, <laughs> Talk, speak whatever you want. Yeah. So this um, is one of the only, uh, 
platforms now where they can't control what, what they what's being put out there. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, um, a few weeks into this, they'd finally let it. They had finally started letting um, air traffic flow again, and uh, we ended up uh, getting a call to go to the Manchester airport. Uh, to debrief a pilot who had declared an emergency. And, and because he had a foreign accent, everybody was freaked out. No shit, huh? Because he had a foreign accent. And turned out he was an Israeli, and he was a professional pilot. And he was ferrying an airplane from North Carolina over to somewhere in Europe. Um, uh, somebody in Europe had bought this airplane um, in North Carolina. And then, it, you know, so you get these professional pilots that will ferry airplanes here and there. So it was his job to do that. And apparently, uh, he got to a point where he had some kind of digestive anomaly occurring. <laughs> and, uh, maybe it was the, the crab cake in Maryland. I'm not sure. But, um, anyway, so, um, he, he declared an emergency because he really needed to hit the, uh, a restroom and they didn't want him to land. They wanted him to stay on his flight plan, but because he was deviating from his plan, he, um, uh, they, so anyway, I ended up. You know, everybody's like, well, how are we supposed to interview this guy? And what questions are we supposed to ask him? And, and all of this? Well, I had, I had a solo certificate as a pilot. Yeah. I was flying airplanes, but only as a solo. I never, I never got my private ticket or anything, but they don't, I, I kind of like it's common sense. You just ask him, you know, where he's coming from and what the range is on the airplane and, and what flight plane he'd filed. And I just, I'm just going down through a list of questions that I would ask him. And I kind of invited myself to the conversation among the supervisors and, and the seniors. And they all just looked at me and said, congratulations, you're going to interview this guy. So I'm like, <laughs> well, here I am, you know. And I, boy. So it was actually, it was pretty cool. I had a good talk with the guy. But I mean, it, it was just, it is what, it, it was what he said it was. I mean, he he couldn't do anything before he went to the bathroom. <laughs> so yeah. we had to escort him everywhere. So escorted him to the bathroom. Yeah, he had to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> it is what, you know, it's like, Did he get in trouble for declaring an emergency for that? No. What it is is if you if you've got a situation and you need to get to the ground for whatever reason, and they're saying no, well, once you declare an emergency, you're basically little Jesus in the cockpit. Okay, anything <laughs> you say goes. You are never wrong after that point. See, I would think so, that he would have caught like a huge fine for that, no. especially right after nine eleven. No, he not as far as I'm aware. I don't know. I don't know what the FAA ever did about it. But yeah, I mean, really, are you going to leave a guy up there to shit his pants? You know, or <laughs> no? He, but he, he needed it, to it's... come down, and they were telling him, no, 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 don't deviate. And basically, <laughs> all it was is, you know, read between the lines. You have a foreign accent. We don't want you. In yeah, city. exactly. <laughs> so it's like you know, yeah. xenophobes. Oh. <clears throat> back to the uh, back to the show now, Pete. After that brief. Uh, Interact or in, yeah, <laughs> interruption right Did there. Did you all enjoy the music? Exactly. <laughs> so you uh, you were talking about you know getting hired by state police and yep. you know that interview with that that pilot. Right, right, right. And uh, how did you enjoy your time with state police? I really liked it. I I felt um, I felt it was um, as much as I enjoyed my time at at the other PD. Um, <clears throat> I really enjoyed my time more, I guess, at state police. And how so? Um, the independence and yeah. so so city police it's just the nature of the beast and you just you just got to accept it and, and move with it but you get micromanaged you know you're working in the direct presence of a supervisor most of the time and they're going to do what they do and and that's okay i, I usually had really good supervisors I, I don't have any complaints about that so much um but you know as a trooper i had i had 571 square miles 
that was my own little domain. And uh, if the guy in the next patrol didn't come into work, well, then I had his too. And uh, sometimes nobody in the county came out, and I was alone in the county. And so now I've got 1,831 square miles. And <clears throat> and they'd add, they'd add a little bit of another county once in a while too. So it was kind of fun because um, you just you you. I, I liked to travel. I didn't like the, so much the driving in circles. So now I drove in much larger circles. <laughs> we call it the Coas 500. But anyway, yeah. um, you know, I, I uh, like in the wintertime, for example, tends to be a little bit slow. And if I was caught up on my casework and stuff on the evening shift, I really enjoyed this. I would I would sign on and I'd leave my driveway and I would drive up. Route 16, all the way up into like Wentworth location, stopping at a at a store that was up there and um, have lunch with the family up there. We, I was pretty friendly with them, and um, so I'd have a I'd have a meal with them, and then I'd come across Route 26 to Colebrook, and it was my it was always my goal to get all the way up to the Canadian border in Pittsburgh on Route 3 and check in with actually both sides. I would go across and talk to the Canadian side too. Mm-hmm. Just to be, just to practice my French a little bit, and to you know meet somebody I hadn't met before, and then I'd come back down and you know hang out with the customs guys for a minute or two, and then I'd um, I'd make my way down and come down the westerly side of the state um, along the west coast. I call it the west coast. <laughs> well, the Connecticut does go yeah. to the sea, so technically, it is. <laughs> <laughs> technically, there's a coast. So um, I'd come down and then I'd come across uh, Route Two or or one of the other east west roads and i'd come back into town and if i if i did it just right it would take my entire eight and a half hours and um it was it was really a, a cool trip to making to car make stops along the way and everything yeah, just work my way up the highway and check on people and you know stop a couple of cars here and there maybe answer a call if it was the, the worst thing that could happen is if you know it's like i'm, I'm up in Coldbrook <laughs> and i have a call in jefferson and now i gotta drive like an hour because somebody hit a deer you know it's yeah like, anyway yeah exactly but, i mean it was it was all right too um, there was, I enjoyed the independence of it. Um, I saw a supervisor once a month, uh, when he would come up and inspect my equipment and, uh, make sure that I didn't need anything. And other than that, unless I stopped in at the barracks for some reason, uh, I would turn all my paperwork in at a, in a relay envelope and somebody would pick it up and get it down to the barracks. And in the meantime, I was off doing my thing in my County and Sergeant would look at my, at my weekly pay, uh, my weekly pay um, accountability, yeah. you know, telling him what I did. And he'd look at that and go, huh, Pete's doing his thing. And then he would pass it to the troop secretary and they would send it to Concord and they would pay me for doing my thing. So, so you guys actually had to keep a list of what you actually did. You yeah, still, I know they still do. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. Um, I, I kind of, I'd like to introduce something like that at my own PD where I want to see how many hours somebody puts into a particular case. And it's not really, you know, I, I'm just, trying to keep our heads above water right now i don't want to bog the guys down in paperwork or do anything like mm-hmm. that so but eventually I, I think i'd like to see something where you know how many patrol hours did you have this week out of 40 um how many um you know how many hours did you have on casework how many hours did you have on you know crashes or whatever so um and maybe that maybe sometime i'll be able to change that but it's not like that's a want not a need sort of yeah i, right, can, I can understand that right now we just need to be on duty so we can answer the calls that come in so yeah well, you uh, did how long at the state police? Seven years. I did seven and a half years there, so a total of total of twenty one between thirteen and a half in the first PD, and then seven and a half at state police. And then, what year did you decide to hang it up full time? <clears throat> Two thousand nine. Right before I got hired. Yep. Well, hired as a police officer in general. So right. Two thousand nine, and then you went back to part time role. Yeah, I, uh, I, I thank God I did this. Um, this was like. 
probably the best decision, one of the best decisions I ever made was um, keeping my full-time certification by getting hired immediately by the sheriff's office. And then I, I went back to um, the original PD yep. Berlin and um, got back on the SWAT team with them. And I, I actually worked the road a little bit with them too. Uh, over the years, um, I was doing covert details when we were looking for that fire bug, and that was that was a ball, but um, I never actually caught him. I did see him. Well, so, uh, well someone tried stealing your car where you, you were in it, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> so tell me about uh, that. Oh, that was a cluster. Oh, that was a total cluster. <laughs> so you've heard about that? I've heard. But oh I've heard there are many uh, Pete Pelletier stories oh, that I've heard, geez. and I'm not going to – I remember yeah. one about stray dogs. And yeah, what you used no, to do with no, no, what you used no, to do with stray no, dogs. Stop. We're censoring. <laughs> We're censoring this. So, um, yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So it was getting cold, and we we were still having arsons. We didn't have snow on the ground yet, and um, it was thanks. It was just before Thanksgiving week, twenty ten. Um, I'm watching a particular person's house to see if he's going to leave the house, and um, I'm. I've got my vehicle parked like a couple blocks away in a parking lot and I my I had a Chevy Equinox and and it's like you know I like my creature comforts right so I'm not just going to sit in the way back of the Equinox first off you don't sit in the driver's seat or the or the front of the vehicle where you can be easily seen right, right. so I've got the vehicle facing away it's totally innocent and um and I'm sitting in the way back and it's all smoked out and <clears throat> I like my creature comforts. This is winter, and I've got to keep a window cracked open to keep the windows from fogging up. So I'm on an air mattress that I inflated <laughs> in, the, in the way back. So I, I had some air to insulate me against the cold yep. of the vehicle. And I'm wrapped up in, in a sleeping bag, right? <laughs> so and I'm just I'm just sitting there, and I'm going to watch this guy's house and see if he leaves his house, and and then you know we're going to figure out what to do. Yeah, go if from he leaves, right? So. Um, and I see, I'm watching people walking by, and I see these two idiots. They come, they come along. You know, they're like in, the, in their teens, late teens, look like, and um, and and they just one of them looks over toward my vehicle, and then he, he says something to my to his friend, and then they they both walk over to my vehicle, and next thing I know, they're like they're pulling on the door handles and the wind, you know, like that window that's cracked open. He's like got his head, he's got his face against the window, and I'm. And and so I freaking freak, get the fuck out of here, you know, and um, and they both go running away, and I'm on the radio immediately. It's like you know, um, and, I, and I'm yeah, calling, yeah. and and they're running toward uh, Pleasant Street, and Steve Arsenal just happened to be in the area coming down Pleasant Street. He sees them come running around. <laughs> we're in a, we're in a church parking lot of all the places to commit a theft. Yeah. So, but they uh, he sees them come running around St. Anne's Church, and he grabs them both. Well, he's waiting for me to. To, to get to him, right? Well, now I'm figuring out why this was a really bad idea with the air mattress and the sleeping bag and all that because I'm totally tangled up in everything. <laughs> There's no room to move. I've got like 18 inches of space between the ceiling and like my sleeping bag and me and all that kind of stuff. So it's like really compressed area. Like totally, totally bad setup. I was like, lucky I didn't get killed. Um, so it was like, it took me like, I don't know, four hours to finally get out the door. Like I fall out the door. I'm trying to crawl out the car, and and I fall out the door onto the, onto the ground. And I get get back in the car, and I drive. I, I walk over. Um, I walked over to the, um, to where he had those guys. He was questioning them. I'm like, this is the one that was trying to pull on the doors, and this is the one that was trying to pull on the window, or whatever. And yeah, so that was that was kind of interesting. Um, but 
Yeah, it was like a, what a cluster that was. Like, so <laughs> I can imagine. You know that. <laughs> I can Im- oh yeah, no, I've heard, I've heard many, a few yeah. peopleology stories. Yeah, there's, there's a few out there. So. <laughs> for better, for better or for worse. Exactly. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. You uh, so you decided to do the part time thing after retiring full time yeah. from the state police, and then you know we did a couple of details and trained monthly with the SWAT team, and then. Yeah, and then we had gone to a few sniper schools, Urban Sniper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After that as well, and yeah, I was um, really privileged to go to a couple of uh, Urban Sniper schools that were taught by Mark Spicer, the yeah. um, British Army sniper. Really, really great guy, fun guy, um, excellent instructor. And it's one, he's one of those guys. Colonel Grossman's like this too. He's they're both like they're they're lecturing, and you find yourself resenting the size of your bladder because it's like i don't want to stop for a break i really gotta piss but i i, I don't want him to stop talking right. i'm learning I'm, I'm picking up i can't i don't want to God, go to the bathroom might i have to like, drink so much coffee exactly yeah, oh, yeah. you know so it's, it's one of those they really they're riveting instructors i really enjoyed both of them uh spicer taught some really good covert urban sniper schools and then you decided to get the bug and try for private <clears throat> military contracting yep so what what t- talk to me about that entire Experience, not necessarily the contracts right off, but just from when you wanted to to start doing it. What made you interested in that? So before I retired from state police, um, you know, obviously he's got the war on terror going on and stuff. And it was a couple of years in the making that I was I I saw that they were using contractors out there to help stand up police departments in Afghanistan and other countries, Iraq, I guess. And um, I was thinking, well, gee. I'm a pretty good policeman, and I think I know what I'm doing, and I think I could probably do a good job training other police officers. And, and you know, it's an austere environment. It's maybe a non-permissive environment. I'm not really worried too much about that. Um, you know, probably I probably don't know what I don't know. I right. know I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I was like, I'd like to do that. So I started looking into it, and I ended up um, – uh, I'm trying to remember how I got in contact with a fellow, but he had been a police chief, a chief of police in Austin, Texas, and he was working as a contractor uh, for a company out there, and he was uh, mentoring uh, um, some kind of like uh, like an area, like basically it would, it would end up being like a state police colonel, you know, it would be equivalent to that, in charge of a, a very large area and lots of departments and stuff, and. So I hit him up in email and I asked him what the job was like. And, you know, he was telling me, oh, you'll probably be a mentor to a police chief and you're just going to make sure he doesn't steal from from his own men because uh, a lot of them take a cut of the paychecks. And, right. You know, you're going to try and cut the corruption down, this and that. So it's like I was I was really psyched to do that. And uh, my mother got ill in the meantime and the situation deteriorated to where I didn't feel I could leave uh, to go overseas anymore. By the time I retired, I was like, you know, I was in tears when I called the guy to tell him I wasn't going to go. I was already in the process and being vetted to go overseas. And I, I called the guy that my recruiter and I told him I can't do this. Um, and I have, you know, family reasons and all that. So, so I wasn't able to go. And it, you know, I, I kind of, I always regretted that I hadn't been in the military. Um, it broke my heart when I saw the second battalion of the 197th Infantry uh, Artillery uh, leave in Berlin when they got deployed to Iraq mm-hmm. years ago. It broke my heart as people on I knew all I knew so many of the people in the trucks as they were going by, and the whole town of Berlin, whole city of Berlin, had turned out to line the streets as the guys left um, for war. Yeah. And it was crazy. It was you know some of them didn't come back, and and it was. Uh, and I, I'm sitting there, and I was so ashamed. I remember being so ashamed 
you know, that I wasn't in one of those trucks with those guys. Yeah, but, you so, know, it's just you were at that time when you became a police officer, it was, I mean, yeah, the original Gulf War was kind of on the horizon. But, yeah, I mean, not to any American citizen's knowledge, but at the same time, it was, you know, you, you chose to serve another way. So it's yeah. not like you have to be anything to be ashamed of for not doing that. It's yeah, just, no. you know, you, you chose to do... I mean, yeah, I, I wish I'd gone in back in 05, 06 when I was 17, 18 years old, but sure. life happens. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, I, I try not to have regrets, you know, I guess if I could do something differently. But it's like it doesn't really make any it, – it, it isn't productive or effective to sit there and have regrets. It's like it is what it is. It, what happened happened, and there were reasons they happened and, and whatever. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> But I, I, I remember at the time – and I was just like, I, it, was, it was killing me to watch those guys drive by. So I just, I kept wanting to go overseas. I kept wanting to get involved in, in the in the war on terror and stuff. And um, at some point I heard about maritime contracting and we heard about the piracy crisis mm-hmm. um, off the Horn of Africa. And I'm like, so, and, and a couple of other people had tried to get me to go as like an actual operator um, into Iraq or some other places like that. And again, it, wasn't really a great time uh but even once once the time came that you know that i could have gone after my mom passed in, in 2013 um you know i i was thinking well i could probably get out there now here's the problem i'm that much older um and i'm you know if i'm going to join like a, a team of quote-unquote operators I'm, you know okay i i can say i was on yeah, the SWAT team, but I mean, really, I wasn't like LAPD SWAT. I wasn't yep. New York, S, you know, ESU or something like that. I wasn't like anything anywhere near elite. I was, I was maybe, maybe adequate for our area at the time, but um, I'm, I'm going to be the weak link, weak link in any assignment that that I'm given until I can train up and catch up. If I can train up and catch up, so uh, then here comes this, you know, the maritime thing. I'm thinking, well, that doesn't look so tough, you know, and it doesn't look like, I mean, geez, I, I got to ride on a, on a, on a steady, not really moving around platform, um, <clears throat> you know, and I've got targets and I've got a long range rifle or some other kind of ordinance that I can use. And that's actually something I think I could probably do. And so I looked into it and then I went to a couple of schools. And so about, about going to those schools, there are schools the the money out there is not in contracts. The money is in training people to believe that they're going to get a contract if they go to your school. That's where the money is. So I went to a couple of those schools, and um, I didn't know it at the time. Again, it's one of those you don't know what you don't know. Um, but I did enjoy the training, and I got some valuable insights, made some great contacts. And uh, I signed up to work as a contractor for both of the companies that trained me and they never actually produced any contracts. They were just, they were just, yeah, they were, you know, and so it's like, you know, you get team, you get companies like Trident that hire mainly Navy SEALs at the time they were hiring exclusively former SEALs and now they hire other people, but it's all high end guys. And so, so, you know, I'm thinking, all right, so here's this 50 year old guy and I'm going to try to compete with these, you know, 28 year old studs just coming out of, you know, Marsoc and all that kind of stuff that, you know, and, and the Brits really dominate that industry. And the Brits notoriously don't hire very many Americans. I would have loved to get in with the British companies because they, they're so good on policy and procedure and, and training and making sure you absolutely know what you're about out there. 
whereas like some of these other places they're just like you know and, and this is what i learned because I, I i did end up going out a couple times with um with um it was kind of a fly-by-night company i guess it was just not not a, not a premier company by any means um i was i'm just grateful to have gone out and done what i did so what, so, what did you do so if you can um, get into it the Top job, yeah no it is there's nothing <laughs> secret about it um uh, first time uh, I went out, I, I got a phone call at uh, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock on a Thursday um, telling me that, you know, if I was interested, I needed to be on an airplane uh, out of Logan at um, on Saturday, first thing Saturday morning. So uh, not a lot of prep time. No, and, not at all, huh? But I was thrilled to get the call. I was absolutely thrilled. I'm like, yes, I've trained. I've gone, gone to two different schools. I've got all these certs. I'm like, rawr, rawr, rawr. I'm going out on a, on a real, real yeah. mission. This is so cool. So I end up, um, we, uh, they fly us out to um, Bahrain and uh, we end up going on a dredge. And um, there was a lot of ironic things that happened. And I don't know if, we, if we're going to have time to go into all of it. but As much time was, as you want. All right, cool. <laughs> so the, the the dredge was owned by a U.S. company, and it was flagged in the Marshall Islands. And my father was a World War II vet, and he fought uh, in the Marshall Islands. No shit, huh? Yeah, and he was wounded in the Marshall Islands. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so it gets more ironic later on. So he, he was he was out there versus the Japanese, right? Yeah. So, and he was actually part of VMF 422, which was a closely guarded secret when um when the entire squadron was lost okay. in world war ii it was a closely guarded secret we couldn't let the japanese know that we had just lost a whole squadron of brand new corsairs and but my father was actually a mechanic on that and then his story is that uh once they had no airplanes to to uh to fly because they'd all gone down in, in bad weather um they ended up um giving all of them a rifle because every marine is a rifleman and they sent no them shit. ashore as like mop-up parties and stuff like that so, wow uh, and then later on, once they got pilots and replacement airplanes, uh, they were back in business at the airstrip. And then the Japanese bombed it one night, and he got hit in the leg. And so he got his ticket home, and that was the end of his service. And that was what forty two, nineteen forty four. It was in March. Of, yeah, it was in March of forty four that he got hit. He had just had his birthday, so forty four. So he would have been twenty one. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, um, I think yeah, I think yeah, it's twenty one. So. Um, yeah, so anyway, so <clears throat> back to the ship I was on. It's, it's a Marshall Islands uh, flagged dredge. It's uh, 268 feet long, about 12,000 tons. A dredge uh, just basically sucks um, mud and, and debris off the bottom of the ocean. And they have a big hopper in the middle of the ship where you would normally expect a hold is. And there's a superstructure. There's, there's none of that on a dredge. It's just a big, it's a big wide open bucket, basically. Um, and they, uh, they'll dump all the sand into that and they'll bring it somewhere and dump it. Another option that they have is they can force the sand. They've got really powerful pumps and they can force all the dirt and debris through a pipeline and just get it over to somewhere else. So the dredge, the dredges that um, this company was, was using, they were building all those fancy man-made islands in, um, in Bahrain and Dubai and, yeah. and all the, you know, the, the For airports and whatnot. Yeah, and you know, just like if you if you go to Google Earth, you see all these islands that are shaped like palm trees and yeah. stuff. It's really it's really interesting what they're doing out there with the landscape. Um, so we're on a dredge, and the company had had like some kind of contract where they had to move a dredge from Bahrain through the Persian Gulf around the Arabian Peninsula back up through the Red Sea into the Suez because the Suez needed to be dredged. So the Suez Canal um, 
needs dredges and so they were gonna it was our job to get it there without it being pirated and so <clears throat> we uh we did that we we left bahrain and the first night that we were out there we we're in international waters in the persian gulf and we rendezvoused with an armory vessel an armory vessel um very often has mercs on it um mercenaries as well as uh it's just it's like a floating armory it's amazing it's like all <laughs> kinds of weapons top end low end in the middle ammunition the whole nine yards uh, body armor all kinds of stuff so so we were we were issued this is awesome because our company was like so amazing <laughs> um, we, we were issued 12 gauge shotguns four of them wow uh every one of them was different from the others so i grabbed luckily there was an 870 among them a rem 870 yeah. and that was that's my huckleberry i love those rem 870s so I grabbed that because it's the one I was most familiar with firing, and I, I did a, I killed a lot of moose and deer, and yep. did a lot of shooting with it with a with an eight seventy through my career as a policeman. So I was very comfortable with that, and uh, you know they had bead sights, they didn't have oh, rifle yeah. sights, Jeez. and they're giving us slugs, and we're supposed to have five hundred rounds of slug ammo, and it turns out we had like four hundred and twenty five, and then the other seventy five was buckshot. Okay, so it's like, well, that's not really helpful, but okay, we'll figure it out, and. Um, now we never saw a bad guy. We had uh, it was a four man team, um, and uh, <clears throat> the team leader was uh, a guy that I'm still in contact with. I love him uh, so much, Lee Williamson. He had been a SEAL. I don't remember what team he was on, but uh, he had been a SEAL. He was wicked chill. He was a few months younger than me, mm -hmm. and he was just wicked, wicked, super chill. He was like a boss. He was um, just a great guy, smart and, and easygoing, and you know, just he was he was cool. And I had um, had. Uh, Rusty Wiggins was uh, had just got out of the army. He had had several deployments overseas. He was a wicked cool guy. And then it was um, Nick. I can't believe I, I don't remember his last name right off the bat. But anyway, so there was Nick. He'd been a Marine. He'd been a sniper. Um, and uh, he'd been working for uh, other private security companies in the meantime. Okay. So, so we, we were out there as a four-man team. And um, – we uh, we never saw a bad guy the whole time we were out there. But uh, one morning, it, I was off duty. I was in my bunk, and I didn't know what had happened. But when I when I got up and went out and visited the other guys, you know, they told me that we had been shadowed by what appeared to have been uh, a mother vessel. So, um, <clears throat> so they uh, they they use these uh, Yemeni style dows mm -hmm. um, at, to act as mother vessels for the skiffs that they send out against an actual ship. And so um, we had been shadowed for several hours. So a, a dredge is a, like a really low and slow kind of a right. vessel. Very easy to board for them. Yeah, yeah, very, very low. And they, the crew had, the crew was awesome. The crew was, um, Philip. there was um, mostly Filipino. The officers were Panamanian. And then the, the two mates who actually ran the ship were Russians. And they were the coolest shits ever. They all spoke English mostly. Um, the uh, some of the uh, some of the uh, Filipinos didn't speak much English, but you know, the cooks were Filipinos, and they were awesome. We were eating all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff I'd never seen before, and, and they, the food was amazing. Uh, it was just a really there was it was a happy crew. Everybody was was happy, and, and the Russians were super friggin' cool. Nice. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so. Uh, so we're we're out there and, and yeah so uh, they had this uh, this dow that was trailing us um, shadowing us about four or five miles out and it had some skiffs with it and so it was kind of a suspicious vessel and the guys were getting a little they were kind of getting concerned about it uh, we're 
there's no value in the dredge itself other than maybe the scrap metal. The value in the dredge was the crew. Isn't it the safe as well? Well, there's a safe and there's there's money in the safe. So they'll go after the safe and they'll go after like, you know, whatever's in the in the ship's store for cigarettes and that kind of stuff. But the biggest value on the on the whole ship is the crew. Uh, the pirates kidnap the crew and then sell them back to the families. And, you know, in, in the case of a lot of these Filipinos, there's not a lot of money. They're, they're working to send money back home. You're right. You know, right. so it's like it, it's they, they end up having a particularly cruel fate if they can't get sold. They, you know, a lot of times they get sold into slavery, which still happens in mm-hmm. in Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, <clears throat> so it's just, a, you know, it was. Um, so we, we were out there and like I said, that ship was trailing us. And out of nowhere, um, a Japanese naval vessel comes across the sea lane, cuts right, cuts right across us. And goes out after that other vessel. The other vessel sees that warship coming and they turn and run. And there's no way they're going to outrun that, you know, that Japanese vessel. But they went over the horizon and nobody ever saw or heard anything of them again. Um, so maybe they, maybe they actually took some pirates down. Maybe they didn't. I don't know whatever happened with Did it. Did the captain actually radio it in? I don't, I don't believe. He must have. Nobody, would... nobody ever said anything about the captain radioing in, but. But it wouldn't have been unusual for a patrol vessel just to pick up on the activity. And the reason for that is so that we're in the high-risk area at the time. And, um, and it's, there's, a, there's what's called the IRTC, the Internationally Recommended Transit Corridor. So think of an interstate. You yep. get traffic that's eastbound and westbound. Uh, and the lane is two miles wide for each direction. And they're separated by another couple of miles. So it's about maybe a four to six mile wide um, corridor that all the ship travel um, is recommended to stay in. You it's like register, the same thing for air traffic as well. Pretty much. Yeah. So you register in on one end and you register out on the other end. And what it did w- when they reorganized it, it was it was done in response to some of the piracy out there. And when they reorganized the travel like that, now instead of having the ships spread out all over the place, following coastlines and stuff, they actually had them in a smaller area that was much easier to define, much easier to patrol. And so the, the interdiction efforts were much better. They had much better results. Now, now it's like, you know, it was easier to spot the pirates because they're not, you know, they weren't registered in or out. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so, um, and they, they have a typical, it's just a typical, um, appearance to the, the radar vessels, or whatnot. And, you know, exactly. Yeah. You can see a, a smaller <laughs> ship trailing or a larger ship a couple hundred yards away. That's, yeah, it's pretty much given. So. Exactly. And you know, so you see in fixed wing air assets patrolling the corridor. You see in uh, rotary wing assets patrolling the corridor all the time. And then there are ships. So I saw Australian ships, Chinese, um, German, French, name it. They, they were out there. American ships, you know. And it's just cool to see all these different naval vessels. And I've always been queer for, for naval <laughs> vessels anyway. I just For um, a few different things. Yeah, I just yeah, stop. <laughs> so, um, I just I just really love anything about the ocean anyway, right? So, yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, so, um, so looking at all these different vessels and it's like talk about feeling kind of protected out there it's like why are we even here because you get these awesome guys that are out there you know and and i had read a book not long before that where it was it was written by a former seal and he was talking about some of the interdiction efforts that the seals were involved in that nobody ever hears and probably the most tragic thing about our special forces is that they have done so much excellent work behind the scenes that nobody will ever know about that's, you know? that's one thing that they love though yeah and yeah. i don't blame them yeah it's you know it's that's just they're just they're doing work and that's all they, they care about yep. yep so you know it there's nothing 
you know, having being friends with Tony and whatnot. Right. It's you know, it's just he just just here doing work and here that's what we do and it's just a Monday to him. Yep. You know, it so is, it is. It's those quiet professionals. The guys those guys are just gems and, and Tony was absolutely right when he said it's the best um the best expenditure of taxpayer money there is. Yep. You know, that's those guys are out there doing and and you know, so you get the special forces guys, but no less just having the naval vessels, the pilots, yeah. you know, and all that stuff patrolling those zones, uh, that made a big difference in piracy. So you were out there what two times doing that same exact? Yeah. So I so we took that ship uh, on the first mission. We took that ship to the Suez Canal, and uh, we stayed. Our company they were so fly by night it was crazy. <laughs> so we get there and there were no accommodations. There were no airplane tickets back home. There's we're we're outside of we're we're in the Suez. We're in what they call the the governor's. The minister's tongue, which is so I got to swim in the Suez, and then they told That's me get the cool. hell out of there. What are you doing? And I'm like, what? It's water, and they're like, yeah, it's full of sharks. Get out of there. So I'm like, well, shit. So, but um, uh, but we were staying in a mansion with a bunch of South African mercenaries. They were awesome. They they we they had a fridge full of beer, and then they had a giant cabinet full of hard liquor, and and they told us we could have all the hard liquor we want, but they wanted us to replace the beer. so it's like okay so we replaced the beer um and we left more there than we had taken and um yeah i don't remember a lot about the first 24 hours over there um (laughs) but there's a picture on facebook with i remember oh yeah yeah. i've seen that one with the uh kids were horrified the uh the swimsuit yeah yeah my speed up yeah yeah (laughs) yeah sucking in my gut but uh you know, I, I just I just looked like I was probably on Old Orchard Beach, and I was, I'm from Quebec, right? So, he boy, yeah. He. So anyway, so <laughs> so we yeah we did that mission. Then we did um, uh, about a year later. Uh, I get I get called uh, by the same company, and I've been trying to get in with all these other companies, and it's I just can't, the same I can't. one. I'm, I'm throwing out my resumes, and after a while, my cover letters instead of being I, I'm I'm offering you, you know, this yeah. and that, you know, after a while, my my there was a particular company I really wanted to work for and, and they never responded to any of my stuff. And I'm like, I know I'm sending this cover letter for nothing because you're not, you're not absolutely not going to do anything with my <laughs> fucking resume, but here it is, you know, just in case you actually read my stuff, I'd really like to work for you assholes. You know, so <laughs> they never, it's like, they, they you know never it's, roll back. It's, they, uh, I didn't realize how much of that is a keyword game. Yes. And you could literally just go through your, your resume and cover letter and just type in the keywords, which is stupid. And then they're not going to look at it. Yeah. They're just going to do their search and then find out which one has got 100% for keywords and yep. call that person. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the federal federal government. Mm. You know, they'll hire based off the keywords. I know people that are, that are cops of the feds and didn't meet anybody during their background exam. Right. You know. They're just like, yeah. I yeah. Know. It's, <laughs> it's nutty. So, yeah. So, the second time they called me, which was like about a year later. So, it's uh, spring of 2015, uh, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, Thursday, five o'clock. Hey, can you be on an airplane Saturday? I'm like, okay. So they fly us to they fly me to Singapore. I met my, uh, I met my. That's right. My I remember partner. this now. Yeah, that was that was cool. So flew to Singapore, and it's like so. It's ten degrees in Feb in uh, February when I leave here, and I land in Singapore, and it's like unbelievably hot. And the locals, <laughs> the locals are complaining about the heat. And I'm like, I am so screwed. Because the, the heat knocked me over big time. I just, I don't tolerate heat as well as I used to. I'll tell you that much. And uh, <clears throat> so we, we, we were 
brought around town uh, for a while until it was time to get us to the ship. And then they bring us to the ship. It's dark. And they put us on this um, 30,000-ton grain um, bulk, uh, 30,000-ton bulk freighter. And they were hauling, oh, they were hauling 30,000 tons of grain to Ethiopia for famine relief. It was under the U.S. aid program. And it was a U.S.-flagged vessel with an American crew. It had one Filipino guy who's, I think he's an American citizen, but anyway. Okay. Um it was uh, it was an all American crew for the most part, and um, and that was that was uh, it was a good trip. It was a long trip. The first trip was twenty one days. The the uh, twenty days. The second trip, the one I went on for out of Singapore, was sixty one days, and uh, we took the ship from Singapore uh, through the Straits of Malacca across the Indian Ocean uh, into Djibouti, which is in the Horn of Africa, right yep. next to Somalia. And we were at anchor in Somalia, in uh, in Djibouti for 19 days. And then we were alongside um, discharging grain for 11 days. And the whole time we had to keep a security detail going, uh, you know. And How many guys? I had a four-man team and they, they had made me the team leader. And I'm like, oh, I'm the team leader <laughs> and I'm the team medic because, you know, from the last time when I was a team medic, it's like, so I had, uh, I had an American with me. He was... Uh, he was just got out of the Marine Corps not long before that. He lives in California. Was still in contact all the time. He's actually got a, a pretty good Instagram page. Um, shows off his woodworking and masonry skills. Oh, nice this guy does great work. And then uh, um, <clears throat> there was a fella. Well, there was a two of us from from the states. We. Um, we were on the ship. We were the only security for the ship, and the captain wanted us to stand security immediately upon arrival. So we flew like 20-something hours from the States, and then we got to stand security immediately. So I, I sent him to bed because one of one guy can yeah. do it pretty well, and we were at anchor. And, but Singapore Harbor does have a lot of piracy. A lot of people just climb aboard the ships and try and steal from the safe, like you were said earlier, and and other stuff. That's mainly what they're after in, in, in the harbors is they're after the ship's purse. And, uh, so I, I stayed up until into the daylight sometime. Uh, I, I couldn't stay awake anymore and, um, <clears throat> daylight's pretty safe anyway. So I went down and got the other guy out of his bunk and, and it was my turn to sleep. And I slept for a few hours. I went back up, relieved him, got him bedded down again so that he could be fresher. And, um, and then we just started taking turns and we went all the way through the Straits of Malacca. It was a couple days worth until we got to Sri Lanka. And at Sri Lanka, we off of Colombo, we picked up a, a guy from India. He was a retired warrant officer from the Indian Army. I remember you telling me that now. And then there was a retired sergeant. Uh, correction, the, the warrant officer was from the Sri Lankan Army. And he was he was about my age. Wicked, wicked cool guy. <laughs> Nimal. He was awesome. And then there was... Um, there was uh, a guy from who a retired Indian Army sergeant, and uh, these guys actually they were the real deal. They they had bullet wounds from fights. Where did you had, find this company? Uh, <laughs> the company was out. Of you, know, you don't you don't even have to answer that yeah, question. So I don't know. So so they were on loan from a from a really big company that does okay. maritime security out there. There and they employ almost exclusively with what we call third country nationals. Okay, gotcha. Um, and I actually tried to get in with that company afterwards. And so I, I don't care that you're not going to pay me what Americans make. I just want to do this work. I, I love it. it. Yeah. Why not? Um, that work was the most useful I've ever felt as a human being in my life. Uh, really? It doesn't matter. I, I know I did some good work as a policeman. I know I still do good work. Um, but, you know, when when you do the drill with the crew 
And at the end of the drill, you talk about how, okay, look, we're not going to get attacked. But if we do, then you're going to go to the Citadel, which is a strong point in the ship, usually the engine room. You're going to lock yourselves in there. And you're, not coming, you're not coming out until we come get you. And, and the captain looks at you and says, well, wait a minute. Aren't you coming to the Citadel? No. Our job is to defend the ship. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens if the other guys get on board? Well, we're going to kill anybody who tries to get on board. Well, what happens if you get killed? Then we get killed. We're not going to be captured. We're going to die fighting for the ship. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, if, if it looks bad, if they get aboard... You're going to have to come to the Citadel. And I had this argument with the captain in front of the crew. And I'm like, Captain, we can't be captured. You don't understand. The crew, my my team is already, we're already on board with this. My grandson is never going to get on YouTube and watch some savage cutting off my fucking head. This is not how that works. If, If the gunfire stops and you hear voices that are not ours, don't come out of the engine room. We're going to die defending the ship if that's what it takes, but we're not going to be captured. So um, so that was kind of cool. Um, you know, and like I said, first cruise, we never saw any bad guys. Second cruise, we never saw any bad guys. Um, I got I got a lung infection from the grain dust, and I ended up, uh, I had I, I got a little cut on the ship. I remember that, and you were calling the doctors here to figure out. Yeah, well, there was a lot going on. I had a I had a blood pressure issue out there at the same time, and it was just a lot of a lot of stuff went on. But I, I came home, I was I was super sick. I was sick for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I remember home, that so. now. Yeah, but it was honestly, it's like if if I could still be doing that for a different company, um, if I could still be doing that, I would be out there doing that because that is for I'd never been to sea before, and it was amazing, and it just doing something that I felt was a real, it was a vital part to the war on terror. A lot of people don't realize how much of the piracy money goes to funding, um, a lot of, uh, you know, Al-Shabaab and, um, and Al-Qaeda. And then it was at the time it was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but they they became ISIS. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the money from the, you know, selling the crews, um, stealing the, the bunker oil from the ships, uh, selling the ships uh, for scrap and that kind of stuff. A lot of the money from that goes right into funding terror organizations that that do horrible stuff. You know, Western Africa, uh, West African piracy is insane and it's tied right into all those Muslim terror groups on the shore that are persecuting um, everybody who's not like them, yeah. you know. And so it's, um, it's important. I, I really felt like it was important work and it was... It was my time overseas. My son had already been. And you got son, that itch. Yeah, I had the itch wicked bad. My father had been and my brother and sister-in-law and my nephew and so many of my relatives. And then my son was over there. And it's like, it's just, you know, I had to go. I had to go. And yeah. I, I knew that I couldn't go with the U.S. military because I was too old. And I knew I couldn't probably hold a candle to a lot of the operators out there um, on some of these teams, you know. So, but I, I found a place that I, I found a niche and I went and I, I think I did a pretty good job overall awesome. and I would have done that. I'd do that again in a minute. I'd leave today. Yeah. So. Thursday, they'd be calling you. It's, be on the plane Saturday. Yeah, today's Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> I'd already be on the airplane. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you came back and then you got hired basically as a, uh, as a police chief in a small town still in northern New Hampshire and you've been doing that for how long now? Yeah, so since March of 17. So 17. I came back in April of 16. I worked uh, shagging calls in another small town yep. in Lancaster. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, the chief's job opened up in the next town north. And I've, I've, I've applied as a police chief 
at other points in my career just so that I could get out of where I was. And then finally, I ended up being the chief of my own patrol area when I was yeah. a trooper. So, um, but I've never really wanted to be a chief. I've met too many. Uh, I don't like chiefs. I'm just, I'm just going to say it, and I don't care what people think. But um, if you've ever met a lot of police chiefs, um, they're political animals, and a lot of them were no good on the road, and then they were no good in detectives, and they just kept getting promoted up the ladder. It's the Peter Principle, and that's a real thing. Um, uh, so, but basically, I, I had an opportunity. This this town, unfortunately, um, the police department had collapsed, um, and it, it's just one of those things. It was very unfortunate, um, and uh, but I, I basically got hired to stand up a new police department, and that's what I've been trying to do since March of seventeen. And my my, I've got a couple of goals. I want to have a a high end professional police department even though it's a very small place is i'm only ever probably going to have four maybe six full-timers if um if i can ever get up to full staff um but uh i want to have a a a high-end very professional police department where you know when somebody says oh you know northumberland is here or you know groveton which is the other name for our town um you know i don't want people to roll their eyes i want them to be like fuck yeah groveton's here you know and, you know, now someone's, someone's ass is grass now. That's what I want. And the other thing is uh, I, I want to make a workplace that doesn't suck. So, yeah. you know, because there's, there's so many places you can go and work as a policeman and it absolutely sucks. And I don't want – I've been to enough places. Everybody who's, who's listening has probably worked in a place where they wish they were making the decisions. And so doesn't now – doesn't matter I, if you're a cop or not. Just I'm, in general. Yeah. So now I'm living that dream. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean – Having that good work environment definitely yep. helps the people that are there, yep. you know, and making them knowing that you have their back with everything. So, all right, Pete. Well, I think we've been going at this for a, um, well, it's got to be almost two hours now. Yeah. Yeah. It flew right by, too. Uh, I know, huh? Didn't yeah. it? Didn't it? You got anything else you uh, want to bring up or anything? No, I don't. Um, uh, not not in this installment. Hopefully, I'll have, <laughs> bring me back for something else. Oh, definitely, can, definitely. We can trade witticisms or something. Not that we got now that we got the uh, intro out of the way of yeah. who you are and where you came from, and you yep. just kind of—I thought you kind of just grew up underneath a rock and then just kind of appeared. So, yeah, well, no, I kind of feel that way too. But I wonder how many people fell asleep during this podcast. So uh, like, not too many. This idiot drone on. I know. On. I'm still it's surprised like, anybody listens to me. No, no, lots of people listen to it. I know, and that's weird, you know. So uh, I'm glad you came out finally, that we were able to finally have this. And, uh, you know, one of those things before I move. But I'll be up enough that we can do it again. And I'll have you down, and we'll go from there. That would be great. I'd love to do this. I I know the work you're doing with the podcast is really good work with the mental health focus. Appreciate that. I've got a lot that I could talk about with that, too. I mean, you know, just like I just – I'm really looking forward to – Getting back with you and doing something. Yeah, anytime, so. anytime. We all we might we might have you on for round two tomorrow. So yeah, <laughs> round two. <laughs> hey, I'm 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 your Huckleberry. I'm at your service. Awesome. So. All right, guys. If uh, you want to like us, follow us, or anything on Instagram, you can find us at Point Man Podcast. You can go to Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Play. I know I got that just for you. No, Spotify Sp- was mine. Uh, Spotify I thought it was Google Google no. Play as well. Uh, st- you can go to Google Play and like us and follow us on there, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can actually go to YouTube and watch us as well. We don't have any cameras, but there's uh, <laughs> there's YouTube videos of us up uh, out there. So oh, if you guys have any questions or comments, you can go to uh, you can email us pointmanpodcast at gmail and we will be having some more Q and A episodes. Peter. Thanks, thanks for coming out, man. 
Appreciate the opportunity. All Thank right. you. Thank you.